Now then, we're going to start out the gratitude special with imagery that may disturb some vegans, I'm not going to lie. Everyone else should find it finger-licking good, because sometimes urban legends are true. Snap Judgment. So this story is brought to us courtesy of Troy. Troy Waters. He's a farmer. Been farming pretty much all my life. Still right here in in Fruta. That's Fruta, Colorado. It's a small town just outside of Grand Junction. And the business runs in the family. He farms, his father farmed, his grandfather farmed. But the family member he learned the most about farming from is Lloyd. Lloyd was my mom's grandpa. And I spent probably as much or more time with him when I was younger, growing up, than I did my own dad. And he was a hard man. Let me put it that way. Henri <laughs> had a mean streak, but he taught me how to shoot, taught me how to skin, taught me how to trap. The other thing he taught me is he taught me how to drown the skunk and resuscitate it. Wait, what does that even mean? He showed me, he says, well, if any of your buddies ever fall in the canal and drowned, I'm going to show you how to bring him back to life. And he literally, we caught a skunk in the trap and drug it over there to the ditch, and he drowned the dang thing. And then showed me how to pump its chest and get it to cough and, you know, get it back to life. Well, why a skunk? Isn't that terribly dangerous? Like, why not a... Uh... I don't know, something, some other small mammal that won't... Uh... I, I, I think that's just what we had to have in the trap that day when he thought of it. And uh, as a kid, are you, when, when he's teaching you this stuff as a kid, are you like rolling your eyes or are you like freaking out? Uh, one thing, you didn't roll your eyes around somebody like him. He'd whack you upside the head for rolling your eyes. So that was Lloyd. Mean, but caring and practical to a fault. If you're a kid growing up on a farm and you want to farm yourself, it'd be hard to find a better mentor. But remember, he wasn't even really Troy's grandfather. He was his great-grandfather, an old guy. And he finally got to the point where, well, he started going blind. Uh, He had a minor stroke. Mom moved him in with us, and me and Grandpa's bedrooms were downstairs next to each other. And I spent a lot of nights sitting on the edge of his bed listening to him. He'd want to start talking and telling stories. There's several times my mom come down to wake me up for school and she'd find me. I'd be laying in there on the floor in my grandpa's room or on the foot of his bed because that's where I fell asleep uh, listening to him. And it was when we was living with him that I actually found uh, my grandmother's scrapbook that she kept of Mike the Headless Chicken. Now, if you don't know about Mike the Headless Chicken, don't worry. At this point, Troy didn't either. All he knew was that in this scrapbook, there were pages of clippings, correspondence, family photos of his grandfather, Lloyd, with what appeared to be a chicken with no head. But in all his late night chats, Lloyd had never mentioned anything about a headless chicken. So Troy went and asked his mom, what's the deal? She goes, oh, yeah, that's, you know, something that happened right before I was born, and Grandpa really don't like talking about it much. And I go, okay. But one of those nights when he was uh, wanting to visit, I got the story out of him. The story takes place right there in Fruta in 1945. Back then, Lloyd was raising friars. Friars, uh, a chicken that's raised, you know, for slaughter. And the day that uh, it was time to slaughter him, 
you know, he'd reach down in there and grab one by the legs, throw it on the stump, whack its head off with an axe, and flip it over on the ground, let it bleed out. And, you know, he says, you know, you always had one, you'd cut the head off, and they make it back to its feet. That's where the expression come from, you know, run around with chicken with your head cut off. It's because they would do that. Troy says that a good run for a chicken with its head cut off is four, maybe five minutes, max. Then it dies. But when he got done, a couple hours later, this one last chicken was still standing there without a head. And the chicken? It looked fine. It wasn't bleeding. For the past two hours, it had just been walking around like normal, headless. So he figured, what the heck, let's see if it'll live till morning. He put it in an old wooden apple box, set it on the back porch, and the next morning he got up and the thing was still alive. He was amazed that, you know, that's been alive for almost a day now. This shouldn't be happening. So he hitched up the team of horses, loaded up, you know, all the dead chickens to take him into town. He took this one with him in the apple box and started betting guys a beer that he had a live chicken without a head. And, of course, they expected it to, you know, be dead at any time. It wasn't until day three that people started realizing how bizarre it really was. I'm just curious, like, what, yeah, what was it, what was the chicken physically like to look at? It, he looked normal. Grandpa said he acted normal. Uh, when he cut it off, uh, basically, I think he dang near missed, and he cut it high. So when he cut the head off, he. Uh, left the base of the brain stem and actually one eardrum. So it, it still could hear. It'd still get startled, you know, with a loud noise or something. It still tried walking around. It would still try to prune itself with the stump of its head. Oh, no. You know, it was a, it was a rooster. Right. A, you know, a male chicken. So it would still, Grandpa said it'd still try to crow, and it'd make a gurgling sound. How did, how, how did... How did Lloyd feed it then? They fed it right down its gullet with, you know, your old-fashioned glass eyedropper. And that would have been the chicken's life. Preening, gurgling, ingesting. Were it not for what happened next? About two weeks later, that's when it caught the attention of a gentleman in the business of promoting sideshows. His name was Hope Wade. And the sideshow promoter had a proposition for Lloyd. He told Grandpa, I says, you know, we could travel around the country with this thing and you could make a little money off of it. And, you know, that was right at the end of the Great Depression. And Grandpa was still pretty much farming with horse and mule. So he took Hope Wade up on his offer. And it was a good thing he did because it turned out that Hope Wade was, there's no other term for it, he was a marketing genius. Because he didn't just throw this chicken into the sideshow circuit right away. It's more like he rolled him out. Phase one was to give this chicken some credentials to make it more than just an urban legend. So he took it to a university, a bio lab in Salt Lake. And the scientists there surgically removed the heads of several chickens to try to duplicate the chicken's condition and never got any of them to live for any length of time. Now that the chicken was a bona fide scientific phenomenon, that allowed Wade to initiate phase two, the press. He got Life magazine to come and take pictures. Hope Wade says, well, we need the head. Well, Lloyd never thought about keeping the head. So the head that's in all the photographs was not his, not his true head. It was donated by another chicken. And if you look at the Life magazine photos, you can see why Wade was onto something here. There's the body, 
and right there on the ground next to it, there's its head, staring at you, looking almost kind of forlorn. Hope Wade's also the one that come up with the name, Miracle Mike the Headless Chicken. Did he have any name before that? No. With phase three completed, Wade declared that Miracle Mike was ready for the big time. Or, I guess, the small time, because, you know, it's a sideshow. They had him in a tent, and they would have callers, is what they called them, standing out front. Grandpa said they'd usually take turns, either him or Hope Wade, to try to convince people to pay their two bits to come inside and actually see. His only problem was when uh, people would come in, most of the time he'd just sit there in the straw like it was asleep. Because in Mike's world, it was always night. Mm. And they'd have to prod it and get it walking around and you know try to make it active to prove that it wasn't dead. Some people were amazed, uh, some people were horrified, but you know, part of what made Miracle Mike work was Grandpa was there because he was the man that swung the axe. The man and his chicken proved an irresistible combination. Mike was a hit. In Salt Lake, in Phoenix, on the boardwalk in Long Beach. At some point, there was a whole tour of the South. And at his peak, Mike was probably making several thousand dollars a week. A year passed, a year and a half, and Mike's fame spread far and wide. There's letters that are only addressed to the owners of Mike the Headless Chicken 200 miles west of Denver. And them letters found their way to my grandparents. Some of them were good. Most of the letters Grandma kept were, uh, were hate mail. There's one letter that actually compares my grandparents to the Nazis for their cruelty of letting Mike live. You know, and I, and I did ask Grandpa about that. I said, what do you think about that? And he goes, he goes, oh, hell. He goes, you know, that chicken had the best life of any chicken. He says it was nurtured. And his words were, got to see more of the country than any other chicken ever got to see, even though it didn't have a head. Did, did Floyd or Wade, did either of them ever develop feelings for Mike? I'm sure they did. I mean, how could you not? It had to have been taken care of like, like you'd take care of, a, of an infant, a baby. You know, so I'm sure you'd, you'd develop feelings for it. Uh, did Grandpa ever admit that to me? No. That, that, was, that wasn't the kind of man he was. And, and during this time, was there any sign that Mike was, like, flagging? No. He was doing good. But one day, Grandpa came back home from the sideshow, and he didn't have Mike with him. So everyone asked him, what happened? And he'd always claimed that he'd sold it. Just told everybody that he got tired of traveling all around the country, and it was fun for a little bit, but he was ready to come back to the farm. Somewhere around two years after, one of the local newspapers asked Grandpa if he'd heard from Mike and if Mike was still doing good, and he goes, oh yeah, he's still doing good and still traveling around the world. But he never did say how much he sold it for, and everybody thought that my grandfather had made millions. And it wasn't until one day, sometime in the 80s, a lady from the local newspaper called up, and she asked him who he sold it to. And he says, I didn't sell it, it died. 
And I remember my mother was in the kitchen, peeking her head around real wild-eyed and looking at me. And I looked back at her because that was the first she'd ever heard of it. And, you know, that intrigued me. Well, what happened, Grandpa? And he finally broke down, and he actually had got a tear in his eye, and he says, well, I let it, I let it die. It was my fault. What happened is when they had it in Phoenix uh, at a sideshow, they brought it back to the motel room with them. And that night it started choking. And they, you know, woke him up and they went to get the bulb syringe to clear his throat. And they had forgot it at the sideshow. And before they could find anything to clear its throat, it choked to death on him. And um, what what did what did he do with with Mike's uh, body? I would assume that it ended up flipped out in the desert, somewhere between here and Phoenix. And I think it he always felt that you know it was his fault. He's the one that left the bulb syringe at the sideshow, and he let the goose that was laying the golden egg die on him. And as for all the money Lloyd did manage to make before Mike died. Grandpa's exact words to me is that the government took most of it in taxes. Hope Wade took his cut, and he made enough money that he modernized his farm, and he bought him a brand-new pickup, which I still own today. But that was pretty much it. After that, there was no money left. Lloyd went back to farming. By all accounts, he was never able to replicate his former success. But knowing Lloyd the way I knew him growing up, I'm sure that every time he swung an axe again, I'm sure that was in the back of his mind. What about you? Have you ever tried? Have I ever tried? <laughs> no, I have not. Has the thought crossed my mind? Yeah. Just as a laughing thought. But... No, I, I think if I did one today and actually lived, I don't know if I'd let it live. I think I'd finish the job. Walters. Troy is still working on his family-owned farm in Fruta, Colorado. And for more information about Mike and his legacy, visit our website, snapjudgment.org. Original score for that piece was by Renzo Gorio, with additional instrumentation by Andrew Vickers. That piece was produced by Headless Joe Rosenberg.